Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we do Science on the Street, where we go to one of the Young Scientists of Australia's social events and ask these young scientists what they feel about a range of news stories this week in science, including what's actually going on with black holes in the latest research, what foods are safe to eat, which animal you take into a casino with you, and would you actually want to live in space if that meant you could never come back to Earth? And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. For those of you that were listening last week, we finished, got through part one of our Street Science Special, where we looked at some interesting ideas and research around black holes, along with animals, visions and senses and how they could relate to help you out in a pinch. Now this week we're going to continue on with the information and the the questions and answers we recorded at one of the Young Scientists of Australia socials and we're going to keep going through some new and interesting questions for this week, including some interesting questions and theories around the psychology of learning to eat different kinds of foods and the question that we all want to answer. If we could live in space, would we really want to if it meant giving up a life on Earth? But first, our City of Science for this week, which is the same of last week for this two-part special. Now, City of Science this week is going to be Melbourne, and not for any fantastic research that's happening there, and not just because it's our hometown, but that's where we've been walking around the streets asking some young scientists who are one of our events here for the Young Scientists of Australia what they think and feel about some of these exciting new science stories. So Young Scientists of Australia had a, their introductory social event of the year after the ConocoPhillips Science Experience, um, which was a nice getting social, and there was about 60 people there in attendance, and we took that opportunity to poll some of them and ask them a few questions about some interesting science topics. Now, the, I'd like to thank all of them for being involved and being such great sports, and that's why Melbourne this week is our City of Science. When we think about eating food, where some people are very fussy eaters, some people don't like certain types of food, certain types of flavours, senses and tastes, and getting children to eat food, especially new or interesting types of food, is one of the most challenging jobs that a parent faces, especially in the early years. And that raises a lot of interesting questions for both psychologists, biologists, and researchers into genetics and anthropology. How did humans first discover certain types of food? How did humans first figure out what foods were safe to eat? And how did parents pass on that information? In the first place, where did the parents even figure these rules out from? And so we asked a lot of our attendees what they thought of this interesting topic about food was safe to eat or good to eat. And how their parents had any interesting techniques to help them to get to eat it. How did you know what was safe to eat? If you think about like food, like milk, how did we discover milk? Think about that. That's like, well, did we discover milk? Exactly. So, well, how, how did you know what food that was okay and good to eat? Like, even out of this, did your parents like feed you? Did they do the airplane thing with you? I don't remember. Do you have siblings? Yes. Do you remember what your parents did with your siblings? No. Okay. I remember nothing as of like four years ago. How it works? I think they tested. Back in time, Go someone would have eaten the red berries and then they would have died. Yeah, and then that's they what I was going to say, like, trial and error. Whoa, dude, don't eat those red berries. Yeah. That guy okay. ate them and he died. All so, good science. So, so, like, are you trial saying that error. since Neanderthal days, we've passed that down? Yes. Well, by word. By word. Don't eat those berries. Okay, okay, so that's that. your hypothesis is that it's been literally passed down by word of mouth. Well, everything's been passed down by word of mouth. And also, like, if someone eats the berries, then they die, and then, like, the, their, their, their husband's going to be like, don't eat those berries, you'll die, and just 
And Nintendo's like riding and like cave paintings and stuff, so it's just world of mouth. Alright, that, that, that's a good theory. Cave paintings, do not what, even write that. Taste bad. Yeah. Oh, oh, taste. Okay. Taste is a good one. So you, you're riding with taste? Yep. Okay, okay. For now. How do we know, how do you think we know what food is good um, and what food is bad? Trial and never. <laughs> but like what? So there was some one person who sat down and tried every single food out there. No, as in as in over time, people, everyone, um, people will have gone. Right, I'll try this. Oops, he died. Better not try that again. What about and the so stuff that tastes down. terrible that we eat anyway? Such as or like pufferfish. Pufferfish. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's another story. But what about weird herbs and stuff? Mushrooms. Deep sea creatures, like, like so you're saying trial and error for those as well. Yeah. What about milk? That's a different story. The, um, <laughs> like, lactose intolerance and all of that stuff. But. Yeah, okay, okay. What, what about what about um, okay, so your idea is that it's just literally people have found them and passed them out. Does anyone have any siblings? Yes, yes. younger brother. Okay, how did your parents get your sibling to eat food? By mashing it into other food, by hiding it, by hiding it in like. Okay. Yeah. Then, yeah. Then they realised it was hidden and stopped eating it. Okay. So, so hiding, hiding and mashing is the two things we've got so far. Yeah. Forcibly making us eat. Bribery. <laughs> bribery. Oh, bribery's a new one. Holding my mouth open and shoving it down with the chopstick. <laughs> <laughs> no, starvation. The promise of ice cream if you eat your vegetables. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Definitely, definitely, definite bribery. So we got some interesting answers to a wide variety of questions there. They found out a lot more about people and how they learn to eat food, or how where they thought food ideas about food come from. And the reason why we're talking about this is a bit of recent research that has been conducted at Yale University. Two psychologists by the name of Wurtz and Wynn from Yale University have been looking into children's learning of behaviour, specifically when it comes to food. So scientists have looked at babies and children learn to eat what's safe. And when you think about this, it's really vague about how all this actually came to be in the first place. For instance, milk, eggs, mushrooms, or a myriad of strange foods. It's really unobvious that you should put them in your mouth and try and eat them. But obviously, at some point in time, humans have done that. And sometimes that goes well, sometimes that goes badly. But this research that has been conducted has found that human kids look to cues directly from their parents to understand what is safe to eat and what's not. Now, obviously, part of raising a child for all animals and all and humans as, as a as matter rely on their parents to tell them what is good and what is bad, what is safe to eat and what is not, because a child cannot fend for itself. And this applies to food. So babies instinctively know and love putting things in their mouth to try and eat it. And you may have seen a parent in a TV show or in real life do the very silly comical image of uh, pretending to put the food in their mouth to eat it or, you know, making a variety of other motions pretending to eat it and showing that they enjoy it and so that the child does it. And now this may seem comical and this may seem silly or unnecessary, but Verts and Wind from the Yale University have actually shown that this is a really important part of teaching behaviour and what's safe to eat to children, specifically in relation to plants, which is what their studies do. So they tested this hypothesis they had that she, seeing mimicry, that foods are safe because parents are eating it, 
is having an impact on children. And to do this, they looked at plants over an 18-month trial. And it, it actually was very interesting. So what they took is they took a plant, um, and a realistic-looking artificial plant, and an obviously human-made sort of object. And they had a group of 18-month-year-old year, 18 children um, who were full-term. And each child was shown an adult taking a fruit off both the plant and the artificial object and placing it in their mouth as if they were eating it. The fruits were then taken off the plant or the artifact and the infants were asked which one they would eat. So they offered the fruit. And the, off, the children showed a clear preference for the fruits that came from the plants despite the same way that they were presented with this mimicry, this social information that it was okay to eat. And the cue there is really interesting. So obviously mimicry is really important. If a, a adult or a parent shows that the food is safe to eat themselves, the children are likely to eat it. That's well explored. But the difference between plant and obviously specifically not a plant is quite interesting. What they found there is obviously a genetic or some other behavioral bias in these infants to know that the plant, the natural based one, was safer to eat because they recognized it as being able to produce food that is safe. And that is what, and that is the inference as to why they prefer it over the man-made construction. They then explore this a bit further. What happens if the, the, the adult didn't eat the fruit? So they took it off either the man-made or the real plant and uh, pretended to take it behind their head or take it in their hand or behind their ear or just looked at it. What happened then is that the infants chose randomly. So this, again, suggests a correlation that the children are actually looking to the cues of the humans that it's safe to eat, but they still had a preference for the plant for the plants. Then they took this to another step. They applied it to younger infants, children with six months old who had no experience with solid food, and they performed the same experiment. And what they actually saw was the similar results. They, the children, even at six months old, preferred the same um, fruit that had been had come from a natural plant and had been eaten by the adult, thus showing that there is a preference in children that is almost genetically hardwired to see someone eat it from a natural source and that proving that it's safe, and that means they're more encouraged to eat it. So what does this mean for all those parents out there or all those people who are struggling to get their siblings or someone to eat some vegetables? Seeing the source, understanding that it's clearly natural and understanding that it is a safe food are really important parts of that. And adults can help demonstrate that by showing that it's plant-like, which is what this research is suggesting, and showing that it's safe to eat. So if you don't eat your vegetables yourself and if you don't show them that it's a natural sort of food, then your children aren't going to get that same kind of cue and response from you and they're less likely to eat that food no matter how hard you try so that's some great scientific tips on parenting and how, to, how we learned how to eat foods. Now, if you read a lot of sci-fi and love science fiction and stories about space travel, NASA, the moon, the stars, traveling the galaxy, you would have fantasized or thought about journeying through space. And we all know space has a lot of risk attached to it. It's very dangerous. Even getting up there takes many hard years of training to even get the chance to get up there. And that's if you survive the rocket ship up and the return trip, which unfortunately some people have not. But the question is, if you could go to space and you could travel through space, would you do that if it meant giving up your life on Earth? 
Would you live in space if it meant that you couldn't come back to Earth? No. What do you mean by in space? Like in a spaceship. Like in space. Okay. Close to Earth. Oh, it doesn't matter. Like, Where is my spaceship Yeah, no, like travelling through space doesn't matter. Anyway. Is there unlimited food? Yes. Gonna be like nice is it food. guaranteed that we're nice going to live until we yeah, yeah, have yeah, other people yeah. with me? Yes. Will, we, will we be sick at any point on this spaceship? Well, it depends on what you mean by sick. Like, I can't guarantee your immediate health, but <laughs> it, just imagine you're in a, in a reasonably powerful spaceship with food with other people. Would you live in space if it meant... No. If it meant that you couldn't, if you couldn't come back to a planet. Yes. You can never go down to a planet. You can never go down to a planet. Hell no. Probably not. No? No. no okay. Not. You, but you want to get to travel through space. Nah. Yeah, but then you like yeah. get all the anti-gravity stuff in your... Is there a dog? Yeah, you yeah. Like, Essentially you screw up. If okay. you stay too long in space. So you, I'd say no. No? We have three votes for no? Anyone else have a vote for yes? Unless I have a definite endpoint. Okay. Um, so you and, and you can get... I travel somewhere in space and live in space for the time that I was travelling. Is it cryogenic sleep? No. Okay, it sucks. Yeah. So no, no, no one else would love to live in space and be like a space creature? No, no, no. So despite my sci-fi nerd desires to really see humanity move out into the edges of space, I don't think many people will be coming with me on that journey, sadly. Um, everyone seemed to be very hesitant about signing up for a one-way trip to space, especially if it meant that they could never go down to a planet again. And this may seem like a very silly question that why would you bother asking? But it is actually a legitimate concern. You might have seen a lot of buzz go around the Mars um, mission program called Mars One, which is a one-way trip to Mars that some people are proposing as part of also as like a combined reality show slash one-way trip to Mars. Um <laughs> And a lot of interesting people have applied for that. But there are actually some biological, physiological, and sociological problems about going into space that we would have to overcome if we really wanted to travel. Going into space is a risky and dangerous business, and we've known that for some time. There are a number of threats that loom out there in space, even if you had the most well-protected spaceship and a very good way of ensuring food, clean water, and survival. And your main two risks that you have in space are the absence of gravity and radiation. Now, radiation is something we think about in the kind of cosmic radiation as a dangerous thing in comic books. But in reality, the cosmic radiation is a very valid and real threat in space. On Earth, we are blessed with a very powerful ion sphere that protects us from all incoming solar and cosmic radiation. And the result of which is we get the beautiful aurora borealis and southern aurora lights as well. But in space, there is nothing to protect you. And this is very, very dangerous. So much so that when the first astronauts were sent up into space, we weren't sure if they would actually survive because it was theorized that the Van Allen belts, these belts around our planet where this radiation sort of filters off and bounces off the atmosphere, would be so deadly that they would kill anyone that passed through it. And that was one of the big reasons why we sent up animals into space first, to make sure that the Valandum belts were safe to pass through. The Apollo missions to the moon also had some very real fears that they would die from the radiation the further they went out into space and the further they were away from Earth. So recently, researchers from the University of Rochester Medical Centre Department of Neurobiology have been digging into this idea, and what they've actually published a paper recently in PLUS One, so it's an astrophysics journal, 
that galactic cosmic radiation would actually pose a substantial threat to future astronauts, especially on long-term interstellar missions. The deeper you are in space, the greater level of exposure you have to radiation. And NASA is planning missions to, that are manned to asteroids and Mars in 2021 and 2035. But we keep having studies come back that are showing cancers, potentially cardiovascular and musculoskeletal cancers as well, being caused by galactic cosmic radiation. But some recent researchers... Um, at this research area institute at the University of Rochester, have actually found that not only could space radiation cause muscular dystrophy, cancer, and cardiovascular injuries, but also neurological degeneration, particularly similar to Alzheimer's, mostly caused by the impact of radiation. They conducted experiments, and they had mice, and they exposed them to similar levels of radiation, background radiation that would be found on a spaceship through traveling through space. And they noticed that these mice started to develop symptoms of what looked like Alzheimer's disease purely because of the exposure to radiation. And this raises a really interesting question. How can we keep astronauts safe in space from all this radiation? Fortunately, a similar study looked at mice as well and fed them the same levels of radiation, but also an anti-inflammatory drug. And they used that to actually produce the impact of the radiation. And it prevented diseases that would often cause things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and various cancers. So they found the synthetic trithyropenoid, CCDO, which actually stunted the growth of that, the cancers and the neurological degeneration, which, in want of a better words, it's actually a, a, a type of property found, chemical found in moss that actually acts like a super powerful antioxidant. Sorry, if you wanted to imagine some super powerful tea made from moss is what they're actually using to protect these mice. And that's one way that you can protect them. And even if you can solve this neurological degeneration and cancer-causing radiation, there are still other problems about travelling in space. Since the body is about 60% water, when you're in space and there's no gravity, that fluids float upwards. It floats into the chest and the head. The legs atrophy, the faces puff, and pressure inside the head actually rises and it makes you feel like you're incredibly bloated and have a massive migraine not only that but the bones become more and more brittle because they're not being used and they're not bearing the same weights that they have previously and even more curiously they've actually also found that for example after doing a long-term study after 50 years of space flight nasa figured out that astronauts eyeballs are becoming more and more squashed by the changes in pressure and the relationship inside the skull now that's why astronauts when they're on a space station on a prolonged space mission do a lot of physical exercise to build up their cardiovascular strength and make sure that their muscles work so they have to exercise almost as much as they have to do actual useful work on a spaceship just to keep themselves okay when they get back to Earth. But the recovery process can take several months, up to 6 to 18 months, for them to fully recover if they've been in space for a very long time. And that gets to the point almost where you are so unable that you can't actually readjust well to normal gravity. And some scientists have speculated, or and some authors have even further speculated, that this would lead to the development, if you had a large space space-bearing population, of people who just could not actually return to Earth, return to a, a gravity-filled environment, that they would just have to live in space. And that, that's certainly possible, and it would mean for a very interesting lifestyle choice. Does this mean long-term that we will see a split in humans to who live on Earth, on planets, to who, those who live in space? It's possible. Um, space creatures also might then develop an, a different evolutionary path, and some speculative biologists have decided that there would be some changes to our structure. It would become longer, thinner, and more elongated to actually cope with that. But humans could evolve to live in that kind of environment if required. But one of the ways we could solve all these problems is with better shielding to protect our capsules, but also a way to simulate gravity. 
And if we could simulate gravity on a spaceship, then we'd solve a lot of these problems. But unfortunately, that's easier said than done. You've seen a lot of science fiction shows where everyone's able to stand up, but without a magical anti-gravity device, you actually have to simulate gravity by creating it, using centrifugal force by spinning a large cylinder around. And we can do that, but it makes spaceship design very difficult and very complex. So if you want to journey through the stars, we have to come and overcome a lot of changes, both physiologically and in our engineering, to mean that we could truly live in space. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So I hope you enjoyed our second part of the Street Science Spectacular. We talked about learning how to eat food and knowing what's safe, as well as living in space and whether or not it's really possible. Next week, we'll mark the one-year anniversary of our show in spectacular fashion. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.